By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. Stupidity and unconscious bias often work more damage than venality. It's the late intellectual Bertrand Russell. Unless you've been living under a rock, then you'll know that the launch of large language model technology has triggered existential questions about almost all professional work. Some are excited, some are scared, some are curious, and others are cynical. In the world of KYC, each of these camps is represented, but one thing that most agree on is that we don't want bias built into our KYC processes. KYC, whilst tech-enabled, has been very much a people business, with large teams built up over the past 25 years or so in major financial institutions and increasingly now in corporate businesses as well. All humans have bias built into their neurocircuitry. It's how we can process information and how we can operate in the world. But does it lead to unfair KYC outcomes? Could AI be the solution to this? Or could it make it much, much worse? To help us explore these questions, I'm delighted to be joined by Anna Nicolis, a senior manager from Braithwaite who specialises in helping global institutions with risk and compliance challenges. Anna recently completed a Master of Studies postgraduate degree in AI, Ethics and Society and comes highly recommended from my brilliant colleague, Katie Warsall, who works with some of Moody's leading government clients in the UK. Anna Nicolis, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Just adjusting to UK time after a, a bit of travel the last month, but uh, I'm getting there. I'm pleased to be doing the podcast. Definitely the, the most fun part of my job. Yes, indeed. Also very excited to be here. It's my first uh, podcast. Well, well, we'll try to to ease you in, although it's quite a complex topic today, so <laughs> I don't know how gentle uh, <laughs> it's going to be, but um, I'm very glad to have an expert on because it's definitely beyond uh, beyond me when we get into the real detail. We're going to be talking about bias and I think bias can sometimes be an evocative word. You know, people can associate it with, you know, lots of negative things. Obviously, bias itself can be used in many ways. But when we say bias in the context of KYC and AML, what, what does that mean, do, do you think? Yeah, for sure. And I agree with you, uh, with your uh, first uh, statement that bias, it's kind of like a loaded uh, word. And uh, for sure, it can have very different uh, meanings uh, depending on the context and kind of the discipline that you are looking at it. Actually, maybe before uh, going into your kind of specific question and what it means in terms of the KYC and AML processes, I always quite like going back to the kind of etymology of this word. Actually, if you look up online, the word uh, bias uh, derives from old French word, meaning a, a slope, something like a slided curve. 
So actually, the way then it uh, moved into the English language use is via the game of lawn bowling. And bias acquired the meaning of this balls having a slightly heavier uh, side, which presumably uh, were used uh, to achieve fair ball uh, outcomes in the game against other players. So then uh, from there, it's acquired the meaning that I guess we kind of commonly use now, which is having a a preference towards something. So having a kind of one-sided preference towards one category over another. So kind of taking that into account, uh, what it means in the context of uh, AI and particular applications and case studies like ML and um, KYC, it's uh, simply uh, kind of this AI models uh, being uh, trained in a way whereby certain uh, categories are, uh, uh, you know, kind of prioritized over others. And uh, this has very different uh, kind of, again, meanings uh, when it comes to the statistical uh, understanding of bias and more societal bias. Of course, uh, they have very uh, kind of interconnected um, uh, also dimensions. So if a data scientist uh, working on a model has a particular you know, societal bias, uh, probably they will also uh, influence uh, the way they kind of tweak the parameters around the model according to those biases. But in purely statistical sense, um, I guess, we cannot imagine a kind of statistical model which is bias-free. So it's, uh, as you say, it's a very uh, contested and complex uh, concept. And uh, I guess my main position is that it cannot be solved with a single approach. It's it's interesting because, like, as you, as you say, like, bias is just a preference towards something. All people have bias in some way or another. Everyone has preferences for something. When you put that into KYC and AML, there's probably cases they prefer to work on versus not, or cases where they've seen many more of them, so they're more attuned to spot risk in cases like that because they've done them before. And then what you're saying, when you talk about the AI version of it, it's more just the statistical way. It's generally leaning towards like a certain outcome. But I mean, today, if we think about most compliance work, KYC work around the world, like most of the surveys and stats, most of it is still largely manual, still mostly human teams. So is bias more of a problem from the human side than it is the model side right now when we when we think specifically about, you know, anti-financial crime activity? Sure, that's a very good question. I guess uh, with the recent uh, AI uh, hype, any uh, business uh, reports and kind of industry reports you read will talk about the uptake of AI and how it's sort of overtaking uh, the world, including KYC and uh, AML. Uh, For sure, there is still a strong reliance on uh, humans. And I think it's, it is very good because, uh, we do not fully understand how this uh, technology uh, works. It has a lot of risks associated with it. So I think the fact that AI has not overtaken yet, it's a good thing. Uh, having said that, uh, for sure, um, there has been a significant uptake 
of the use of AI across the industry. And uh, perhaps where the uh, AI bias uh, risk is also most uh, uh, predominant is uh, obviously kind of the retail facing uh, operations. So for example, the use of identity verification technology using AI, we all have experience of uh, downloading a financial services app um, uh, for you know a trading or investment accounts uh, or simply our online banking, where uh, to get onboarded, we have to take a picture of ourselves or a short video. Uh, what happens is that as part of that process, the company that we're onboarding on is uh, using an IDB uh, technology, uh, 99% also using AI, which is verifying uh, that our uh, face, uh, the image of our face corresponds to the documents that we're submitting also as part of the KYC process and also performs a bunch of other checks to make sure that uh, the process is compliant with regulations and uh, business standards. Uh, this uh, trend uh, has increased as part of the um, online banking uh, boom. Of course, we have so many fintechs and also traditional banks themselves closing off uh, branches. So effectively, this technology is very much uh, replacing the traditional role of the uh, bank teller. Would you, if you had to guess, do you think the bank teller or the model would likely have more bias in their decision making process? So, in this respect, uh, I am a bit of a techno optimist. I think that this technology, as long as it's trained well and it's uh, audited on a periodic basis, it's sort of all set up properly, has the potential to have less uh, kind of structural bias than uh, humans and not only uh, less bias, but also better performance. Because, uh, of course, a IDB uh, technology run by AI uh, is not hangover, uh, does not have uh, sick days, and uh, will always perform against the uh, set parameters that it's supposed to work. Whilst, um, of course, uh, when we're talking about humans uh, running these processes, uh, humans are uh, much subject to many more also external variables and personal circumstances that can impact their jobs. Yeah, because I was thinking about it in preparation for our conversation. I was kind of pondering why does bias happen? And then the sort of, I think the more important question is like, well, is the bias that exists malicious or is it unintended, like consequences of, you know, an innocent decision? And when it's yeah. when it's a human, I kind of go, well, I don't know. It it really depends, like what's gone on in their life, what upbringing did they have, what's their view of the world, etc. But when it's a model, then it itself doesn't have feelings, right? So I tend to think it's unintended consequences, unless the person who built the model <laughs> was one of those malicious actors, which I suppose is a, a you know the next question. Um, is how do you make sure the right people are building the models or the right groups of people so you don't have anything subject to only one person's way of coding a you know a, an algorithm? Um, and any reflections on that? Do you think that my my thought experiments are the right direction? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think that in terms of a an actor, a let's say a human or also a piece of technology acting according to preset negative intentions. Well, unfortunately, 
we can always have uh, such a, a scenario. I would argue that when it comes to technologies and the use cases such as uh, KYC and uh, AML and bias, so kind of the unfair treatment of certain customers over others uh, according to protected characteristics such as sex, uh, ethnicity, nationality, etc., um, is, uh, again, perhaps less impacted by what we typically uh, imagine as kind of active discrimination based on prejudices, simply because uh, my view is that firms have the incentives to uh, onboard as many customers as possible for obvious uh, commercial considerations, uh, whilst, of course, being in line with uh, compliance regulations. So uh, firms uh, cannot onboard uh, customers that have you know, that present fake IDs or have uh, sanctions attached to them, etc. So uh, I do not envisage scenarios where, uh, again, going back to the specific case studies, we can have actors that kind of uh, tweak this on purpose to uh, minimize the access for certain people over uh, others. Um, so I would argue that uh, AI bias in uh, this particular sector uh, is particularly determined by uh, simply poorly uh, trained uh, data, insufficient data, poor par uh, parameters, uh, setting, and kind of the overall governance and policy uh, processes that uh, stand uh, behind this technology. Sure. And we move into some sort of what I think of as essay questions. Like Here's the big one is kind of like, is AI technology going to help us solve bias in KYC and AML, or is it going to make it worse? And I think what you basically just said is, depends how you train it. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Uh, yes, I think that, it's, um, uh, again, like techno-optimists have uh, this view that AI will solve all of the world's problem, will address all of the UN uh, goals, uh, and we won't have to work, we will all have a universal basic income. Uh, and then you have uh, the pessimists uh, talking about a robot taking over and, uh, you know, kind of a Terminator uh, scenario. Um, I think that, again, we need to reflect that right now we're still at the very early stages of the adoption of this technology. And uh, as humans, we have the agency and the capacity to actually set how this technology is going to work for us. So if our goal is indeed to solve, again, going back to the ML and KYC context, to solve um, efficiency um, uh, challenges, to solve um, uh, bias uh, issues, uh, to improve uh, regulatory compliance. Yes, uh, of course, we could also set up uh, this technology in a way that it will, uh, you know, manipulate uh, customer information, uh, will try to bypass regulation, etc. So I think that intentionality is uh, key to all of this. And before being very scared about AI, we need to think about the humans actually <laughs> using this technology. Sure, sure. So you mentioned the use of AI in identity verification um, and the, you know, one of the bias they need to think about is like, are we, you know, are we ensuring that we're doing the right, same thing regardless of the 
level of pigmentation in someone's skin or, or like which uh, sex they are, etc. Are there other technologies like the AI is being deployed to that you think could solve for some of maybe the the bias that's built in at the moment? Like if I think through broad brushstrokes, you've got identity verification right at the start. You've got some, I've seen lots of AI tools that are, are basically just uh, RPA, but they just gather information or web crawl. Got screening, like how can you make the false positive problem uh, reduce? Got transaction monitoring, and there's that idea, do you move from rules-based to anomaly-based or a combination of the two? Um, when you think about sort of the, the tech stack of the typical AML or, or BSA, MLRO officer, where do you think AI maybe has the best potential to solve bias? And then maybe the, the second question would be, where, where is it the biggest risk of making it worse? <laughs> Sure. Uh, yes, I think that uh, you just listed pretty much uh, kind of some of the key uh, areas of the anti-financial crime uh, life cycle and the uh, use cases where AI is uh, used. I would say that AI is uh, operates well. The more data you give it to it, the, the better results it will provide. So any uh, part of that life cycle, which has a lot of data, uh, will be a perfect uh, candidate uh, for kind of automating those uh, processes and anything that uh, is also uh, involves uh, structured data. Uh, of course, it's easier to automate that unstructured uh, data. Um, or at the very least, it will uh, require uh, less sophisticated uh, models. Um, the Association for uh, Finance in Europe um, published a, a report uh, earlier uh, this month, or maybe in September, uh, where um, it was outlined that the majority of the respondents that participated in the survey uh, have seen that as you know, as as um, when it comes to their industries um, across the financial services sector, uh, KYC and ML is the second biggest area where AI is deployed, with the um, first line of defense monitoring being the first uh, candidate. Um, I would say that uh, that is the case not because anti-financial crime and IML and KYC uh, have uh, maybe less of a kind of use case from a data availability perspective, but perhaps because there is a bigger business uh, case mm. um, uh, and kind of obvious efficiencies uh, there. Um, but uh, otherwise, I think that as we kind of uh, said earlier in our discussion, the way this technology will be adopted will be fairly gradual and we will see the human in the loop uh, component uh, for a very long time. Financial services industry in particular is uh, fairly conservative uh, mm. because uh, there is a lot of uh, regulation, a lot of uh, risk management that needs to take uh, place. So I expect that the rollout will be uh, proportionate to those uh, challenges. For sure. No, yeah, I can't disagree with anything you just said. Like, if I keep you in that in that role, imagine you're the, the head of a compliance department or a KOC department, whichever title you have, and you're going to adopt gradually some tools to try to create that efficiency to increase your effectiveness. 
what are some of the things you'd look for? Like, how, how would you ensure that these tools aren't going to be, uh, you know, drifting into, you know, biased decisions that could then come back and be a problem when the, when the regulator audits and says, hey, are your model's up to scratch. How do, you make, how do you make sure the things you're buying to serve you are doing what you want them to do? Yes, this is a very good question. Um, at the moment, uh, there aren't uh, clear uh, standards or kind of industry recognized metrics or regulatory uh, requirements to inform that uh, due diligence uh, process. Um, so um, in a way uh, that... Uh, piece around, you know, how do we know that the, the technology that we're bringing in um, performs as uh, expected and is not drifting away from our risk appetite, our regulatory compliance is very complex. Um, and also it is uh, voluntary. It is elective uh, to a certain extent. Um, I would personally start uh, from uh, engaging uh, external experts uh, unless they are available in-house, which I think currently is really rare unless we're talking about some very big firms. Uh, to uh, as minimum help me as the head of compliance or you know the head of risk uh, understand um, how this technology works and uh, kind of conduct an initial audit uh, assessment vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, its uh, uh, kind of historical performance uh, track records and um, any risk areas that I should be uh, mindful of. Um, also, if and the vendor does make it in. Um, I would make sure that uh, additional controls are uh, applied to ensure ongoing monitoring of the uh, performance of the tool and also compare uh, the data output and management information against my kind of standard uh, KRI and KCIs uh, versus previous um, metrics uh, related to the same processes. So does this technology bring me like completely different results from what I used to have when this process were run, was run by my team uh, or, you know, more manual processes. I would say that these are kind of the two key things that I would look at. How about model governance? I know one of my colleagues, uh, Angus Faulkner, shout out to you. He, he does a really good job of making sure before he even goes too deep with any client, he's like, do you have a data science team? If you do, let's have a meeting. I want to put all our docs in front of them, make sure they're happy with it. I don't truly understand myself, I think, what model governance is, but I know, I know there's a bunch of documentation that talks about how we keep the model calibrated, how we keep the models um, safe, essentially. Is that something that you've seen many firms like understand or, or, or look into deeply? Yes, I think that this is an increasingly uh, discussed uh, topic across the uh, industry and especially with the explosion of uh, chat GPT is really in everyone's uh, discourse. Uh, I am not aware of um, uh, teams uh, doing that uh, kind of type of training and uh, new governance models uh, right now. Um, I think... Uh, uh, again, precisely because uh, the financial services industry is quite uh, conservative 
and in the current environment also quite sensitive about uh, costs. There haven't really been investments into this new area. Everyone is kind of waiting for new regulatory guidance and new standards around that. At the same time, uh, I guess as part of the free lines of defense uh, model, which is an industry standard uh, in the financial services, uh, there is a kind of an ongoing dialogue around improving the awareness of uh, AI risk across all of the three uh, lines. So uh, if the first line uh, has a kind of first line responsibility to understand how uh, those AI enabled tools apply to them, the second line um, will uh, also need to know what, how those tools uh, work and if they create any new risks. Uh, I guess when it comes to the specific role of data scientist, uh, it depends on the organization uh, and, you know, whether that's, for example, I guess in a fintech firm, perhaps data scientists would sit in what we would call like a first line uh, mm -hmm. because they are the business. Um and maybe in more uh, traditional financial services institutions, data scientists and engineers would uh, sit under the technology team. So perhaps they would be in the second line. But um, regardless of where they sit and the immediate risk management responsibilities uh, they have, uh, it's important that... Um, uh, kind of technical specialists and people that work uh, with with data uh, become more aware of um, uh, the uh, ethical implications around the use of of the models that they uh, create and uh, adopt. Yeah, and that ethical consideration. I mean, is there a in your head? Is there a, a checklist of things that people should run through, or does it depend on the project? I would say there uh, needs to be uh, some sort of AI ethics 101 training, almost kind of like foundational uh, principles uh, around the, uh, around this uh, field and uh, the uh, uh, high level risks that are posed by the use of technology. Uh, but uh, certainly there should be uh, more uh, detailed guidance um, and kind of training efforts depending on where this technology is applied, uh, the use cases and uh, specific uh, programs. Um, but I think that it is very important that there is a high level understanding and almost kind of the development of a you know, new culture and sensitivity to these uh, topics so that um, the adherence to these principles uh, is not something that uh, people have to wait for. Uh, they don't have to wait for some prescriptive uh, principles sure. yeah, and, yeah. you know, like a simple checklist, like 10 things that you can and cannot do. <laughs> but uh, it should really be based on a culture of uh, asking the right questions, looking for the right things and kind of challenging uh, the status quo. Yeah. In a way, I would say this could be analogous to uh, the concept of uh, kind of conduct and culture, which is um, fundamental, obviously, to the FCA uh, mandate here in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Keeping you in the practitioner seat in your, your hypothetical role, you've identified some places that you think technology can help you or AI technology can help you. You've thought through sort of how... You're going to deploy that. You've gone through your sort of checklist, made sure it's the, the right sort of thing. You've got your governance framework. You've thought about the 
ethical considerations. What do you think the best case scenario is? The absolute best case for an institution, whether they be financial or a corporation or, or so- something else, who does that puts this into their due diligence processes? What What do you think the the prize is for doing it well, doing it right, and doing it doing it in hopefully an unbiased way? Yes, I think it's the uh, advantages um, as a minimum a uh, threefold. So uh, first of all, just doing the right thing and actually uh, uh, fulfilling uh, those uh, customer uh, mandates uh, by providing a fair uh, access uh, to everyone to specific uh, products, regardless of their protected characteristics. Secondly, uh, compliance with uh, regulations and uh, risk management uh, standards. Um, and thirdly, um, as I was uh, kind of saying earlier, also commercial considerations. So by doing the right thing for the customers, uh, by uh, following regulation, ultimately firms will have a better reputation, a better standing, and uh, will uh, be able to position themselves as leaders in their specific niches. Okay. And if I flip it around, you've decided you're going to use AI, you haven't done a great deal of due diligence, you pick a model that is, you know, low priced, let's say, and, you know, a firm without necessarily the, all the documentation to back it up, you deploy it. What's the worst thing that can happen if you're the, in this practitioner role and you've used AI badly? What, what would your biggest fear be? Yes. So I would answer that question going back to a uh, risk management 101. Uh, so uh, probably I have done a very bad job if I have not thought about any contingency plans. Um, <laughs> if something fails, uh, there should always be a, a backup uh, process to maintain minimal levels of service and provide uh, minimal operational uh, resilience. Um, uh, but of course, the the damage caused by um, technology like like AI is uh, really exponential. Um, I would argue that, of course, AI has some novel risks like explainability. Um, you know, kind of being able to explain how we derive a particular prediction. But at the same time, I would say, from a risk management perspective, that. Uh, AI, the biggest effect it has in the industry is it uh, uh, compounds existing risks. Uh, what it does, it increases the speed and scale at which adverse events can take place. Mm. So let's take the example, like again, going back to the anti-financial crime world. Let's say we have a overzealous uh, compliance officer, ML analyst that reviews uh, a customer uh, case files. Uh, and uh, because they're, uh, let's say, because they have received uh, insufficient training or because they're not reviewing the information correctly or because their risk appetite is extremely uh, low and not within the line uh, of the uh, overall risk appetite of the company, they close a bunch of customer accounts on the basis of suspicious activity where that is not the case. Well, the impact of that overzealous compliance officer could expand to, say, 10, 50, 100 customer accounts. But if we have an AI model that does that, 
it uh, will not take it a day or a week or a month to do the same damage, <laughs> but it, that damage could be done uh, virtually yeah. within a second to thousands of customers. So it's, uh, I think this example illustrates how we can have a similar adverse uh, outcome and kind of the root cause analysis is similar. Uh, so our parameters for closing or suspending customer accounts is poorly calibrated, yeah. but the impact and speed are completely out of Yeah. So it's kind of a mirror of the upside, right? The upside is you can do all of this, you can work way fast, your customers get better service, the regulators are happier because you, you're compliant more quickly and you've got all the audit trial, the model of governance, everything. But yeah, if you do it badly, then as you say, in a second, you can, uh, you can re really hurt the business. Um, when we're talking about AI training, which we keep coming back to, right? how is a model train? I got a question from one of our audience members, and I'm going to read it verbatim because uh, I'm not sure I understand all the words. Um, but they asked, how should we balance data selection for AI model training to minimize bias? Should we create a global baseline that levels out biases or should we select data that evaluates actions in context with similar peers or is it a middle ground? And they just want to know what's your take on those options? Okay, very interesting question. Uh, so the disclaimer is that I'm not a technical specialist, but I will try to, to answer it. Um, so I guess uh, in this field, there is the famous concept of uh, garbage in, garbage out. So it all depends on how uh, well uh, the data is trained, how representative the data set uh, is, uh, and that will significantly impact the performance and accuracy of uh, the models. Um, so uh, as a minimum, going back to those kind of preventative measures to improve our model performance, um, I would argue we need to look at uh, processes that um, uh, make sure that the uh, training data used is indeed fit uh, for purpose. It is representative of the overall uh, population in scope, and it doesn't breach uh, things like the Equality uh, Act. Um, and at the same time, as we train our model, we should also look at its uh, performance. So, for example, if the uh, model uh, has a bias, going back to our uh, definitions, has a bias towards certain categories. So, for example, it performs uh, better for, let's say, white man versus women of color, of course, there is a problem and uh, we need to look into it. Um, and actually uh, looking at the protected categories uh, such as ethnicity and uh, gender, um, when it comes to the intersection of these categories, the problem becomes uh, even more complicated. Um, but so this is, I guess, uh, measures around uh, preventative measures to make sure that the model is well trained and there are ongoing mechanisms to, to monitor its performance. But also there are uh, alternative uh, approaches, um, such as the use of synthetic uh, data, where uh, firms can actually um, acquire this information, which uh, in a way will be 
uh, the risk. So, for example, synthet synthetic data does not have a GDPR uh, risk in the same way real data have it because uh, it's, of course, anonymous. It's uh, not real. Um, and synthetic data can uh, improve for any gaps in their representation of those protected categories. But as ever, there is a flip side of that because it's a synthetic uh, data it might not have all of the nuances of real-world data and it can still perpetuate those biases. Um, actually, on the point of, if I may add, on kind of the nuances and granularity of the data, um, uh, for example, in the context of IDV, um, the, uh, there are kind of two factors at play that really inform the quality of the data. So we have intrinsic uh, factors. So for example, our uh, gender, ethnicity, sexuality categories, but then there are also external factors. For example, the environment where I'm taking my selfie, the quality of the camera of my phone. And uh, these uh, nuances can greatly impact the performance of, of the model and, and how it operates. Yeah, I actually had that the other day. I was uh, my account. Whenever I have to make a payment above a certain amount, I have to do put my face into the the circle, and my my camera on the selfie lens is like gotten damaged like a while ago. But it keeps getting worse and worse. So now it can't really verify me. <laughs> I have to do more and more codes. I need to get a new phone, basically. Um, yeah, I've uh, I've lived that recently. Um, one thing I'm thinking about you. You mentioned like, hey, if you had a rogue analyst, even if they, even if it was just them being risk averse, right? There's nothing actually necessarily harmful. But let, let's just say they they have a pattern of decisions, or there's a pattern of decisions being made in your KOC or IML processes, or processes um, that you know you don't want, right? Because it's following a, a a bias trend. Is it easier to spot that going on when it's a human team? Or would it be easier to spot if it was a model? Because we talked about the scalability, right? And you say the AI model can potentially go off in one direction a lot quicker, whereas a single person or a single group of people, depending on how big the team is overall, you know, it's not great that they're doing it, but it, you know, at least it's contained by their a human can only process so many cases <laughs> in a workday. But like, who's it easier to spot and then and then do something about? Right. This is a very complex question. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, uh, thinking about several factors. So um, I guess maybe to start from the second part of the question, uh, what's easier to manage? Um, I would argue that the AI model is easier to manage than an employee uh, because um, it's, you know, I can call in my data scientists, my engineers, my external auditors, tweak the model and, you know, off you go. Whilst, of course, with if it's about a particular individual or a, a team, it would be uh, much more complex to kind of understand the, the reasons why uh, certain biases and, uh, uh, I guess, preferences are uh, expressed versus others. 
Um, but when it comes to spotting uh, that something is going uh, wrong, um, I guess it's uh, maybe equally uh, complex. Uh, when I think about the human element, uh, spotting something that stands out uh, implies that um, we can kind of consider that human outside of the environment where they operate. Mm. And uh, the human is always part of a specific culture, a mindset. So um, I think that spotting a human doing something that is out of the line would mean that, let's say, if I am the manager, uh, you know, if I am, you know, in some sort of supervision position, <clears throat> around that person, I have uh, the uh, tools to uh, to see that. And I have, I don't know, a different background, a different culture and different training. Um, when it comes to uh, AI, uh, I would think that uh, there needs to be some sort of uh, uh, metrics and control measures to uh, implement ongoing monitoring around that uh, performance. But again, if they are set by uh, humans that have their own biases, we kind of enter this <laughs> loop of perpetuating <Yeah>. <laughs> biases. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I just I was just pondering it and wanted to ask you because I was like, you know, one one person in a thousand person compliance team or a five hundred person compliance team, like quite hard to spot them on the external auditor. Like they're gonna dip sample, right? So like you may well miss it. Um whereas an AI system, because you're gonna you should, in theory, like have all those systems set up to check drift and check anything. And as you say, you can pull people in without any emotional issues and just say, hey. This is kind of going off and making some th decisions that we don't agree with. Can you just like tweak it back? I wondered if that could be an advantage in the medium term as people adopt it to go, actually, like when, when there's a problem, you can sort it out a lot quicker. As you say, it can cause a problem quickly, but you can also solve it quickly. With humans, the damage might be slow, but it takes a long time to fix, you know, depending on what country you're in, like, you know, all the things around have you trained the person properly and like tribunal if they don't agree with you and, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So it's an interesting thing to sort of think think about. In one of my final questions, or the final question before I ask about recommended resources, but um, all that like I've seen so much chatter about bias and bias and bias and bias, and that's why I was asked to to do this topic, which is you know happy to do. But like, I'm sort of thinking about there's this bias question, but there's also this question about in general KYC and AML departments not not doing that well, right? Not being super effective with all the, there's always talk about, oh, we're not effective enough. People talk about huge backlogs in most organizations, huge remediations, which, and, you know, does this add value or are we just doing it to tick boxes? And I'm, I started to think like, well, actually, is all the talk about bias a bit of a distraction? Should we go get the efficiency and try to deal with some of these other problems? And then we can look at where the models aren't right and then we can clean them up next. Because there's kind of like an order of priority. And I don't know if that's right, but I, I wanted to get your take as someone who's like studied the ethics of this. Like, is bias actually the bigger issue versus the huge backlogs of things that haven't been looked at in compliance? Or, you know, or is there an argument that we should, you know, just push ahead and then deal with the problems as they come? Yes, this is a very interesting question. And you are spot on that the debate around uh, AI bias uh, within this field is very heated. From my personal perspective, um, the issue of uh, bias in uh, itself uh, perhaps is poses kind of 
uh, fewer risks than um, risks like explainability. Um, I would argue that risks like explainability is really kind of at the foundation of anything that can go wrong with AI. Um, and also there, I guess, the, there is the argument that also uh, the human brain is a black box and uh, we, you know, how can we trust each other and we don't know how the brain works. But uh, I guess uh, as humans, we have uh, a bunch of unwritten rules, customs, and well, also laws, <laughs> which we respect as, as citizens. And uh, we do not really have that for uh, AI. Uh, so I would argue that for sure there are issues around AI deployment and AI risks that are less uh, discussed, but are very important and very fundamental to this uh, discipline. Second point I would make is that it also really depends on the uh, use case and where AI is applied. So going back to our financial crime uh, life cycle, um, you know, when it comes to, for example, um, AI technology looking at transaction monitoring, well, the risk of bias or privacy for sure will be less than the risk of this model going, you know, just technically wrong, having poor performance or not being explainable. Whilst for areas like uh, the retail markets and like IDV technology, for sure, the risk of bias and privacy breaches poses a greater uh, potential um, risk to uh, those uh, customers versus risks related to explainability. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting perspective for sure i think the yeah explainability i've heard come up again and again and again i think it's like yeah if someone can't show you how they're going to help you with that then maybe end that uh that vendor conversation <laughs> um and move on but uh no thank you for for sort of walking me through that um as i said the last thing i just wanted to ask and i always ask everyone is like if someone's listened to this podcast they've gone okay understood a bit about bias, I understood about models, I understood about some of these biases in humans and how that can impact COVID. So if they wanted to learn more about any of this, is there anywhere that you would point them, any resources that you found helpful that you encourage other people to, to read, watch, listen to? Sure. So uh, I guess starting from the uh, maybe more boring bit, I would <laughs> recommend <laughs> definitely uh, keeping up to date with all of the discourse around the EU AI Act, which is obviously a key piece of uh, regulation that uh, presumably will be uh, uh, kind of finally signed off um, uh, at some point uh, next year. And then there will be a 24 uh, months uh, implementation period. So I think by uh, 2026 or so, we will for sure have uh, a new piece of legislation which will have a global effect like uh, we have seen with uh, GDPR. For the um, UK context, it looks like um, the regulators here are taking a slightly different uh, approach, less uh, prescriptive, more guidance-based. But uh, again, it sounds like both the Bank of England and uh, the FCA and the PRA are uh, very focused on hearing um, industry uh, feedback and practitioners as to whether new standards need to be uh, implemented. And it's uh, such a rapidly evolving uh, field 
field. So I think that any practitioner uh, within financial services, within financial crime and compliance or risk management really should should look into this area on top of uh, existing regulatory monitoring. Maybe on a slightly more um, a kind of philosophical also uh, content and um, um, kind of uh, resources that raise some of the bigger uh, questions. Uh, I uh, recommend uh, looking at um, institutes like the Future of Life Institute, which is a non-for-profit that publishes some brilliant uh, content around um, the developments in, in this field, uh, both from a uh, technology, but also philosophy and ethics perspectives. Excellent. Well, we'll grab links to some of that from you after the show and then we'll put those in the show notes. Anna, thank you so much for coming on, giving me an education and uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Thanks very much, Alex. It's a pleasure. So humans can be biased, so can AI, but the ease of changing that bias may be easier with the latter. Furthermore, the size of the prize in dealing with some of KYC and AML's effectiveness and efficiency challenges with AI is very large, but it will require good governance, auditability and explainability with practitioners, vendors and external experts all having a role to play. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Anna for joining. Thank you to Katie for introducing. And as always, thank you to producers Caroline Waters, Lexi Fox-Mills and Mark Rundle. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.